Chapter Eight of the Merry-Go-Round by W. Somerset Moore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Miss Ley found the dean alone in the library, for the lanterns returned to Tankerbury that afternoon, and Bella was spending her last morning at the stores. You know, Algernon, in this world is the good who do all the harm," remarked Miss Ley, sitting down. The bad carry off their wrongdoing with a certain dash which lessens the iniquity and common sense robs the vice of stain but there's no reasoning with a man conscious of his own rectitude that is a very subversive doctrine answered the dean smiling only the wicked should sin for experience teaches them moderation and little hurts befalls but when the virtues slip from the narrow path they flounder hopelessly committing one error after another in the effort to right themselves by the methods of virtue under like circumstances they endure all concerned far more desperately than the entirely vicious because they won't face the fact that a different code is applicable pray tell me the reason of this harangue a young friend of mine has done a foolish thing and means to cap it with another he came to me just now ostensibly for advice but in reality that i might applaud his magnanimity Without giving names, Miss Lay told her cousin Basil's story. My first curacy was at Portsmouth, the dean said when she finished, and I was then very intolerant of evil, very eager to right the wrong. I remember one of my parishioners got into a similar trouble, and for the child's sake as well as for the woman's, I insisted that the man should marry. I practically dragged them to the altar by the hair of their hats and when i had properly legalized the position felt i had done a good day's work six months afterwards the man cut his wife's throat and was duly hanged if i hadn't been so officious two lives might have been spared mrs grundy is a person of excellent understanding who does not in the least deserve the obloquy with which she is now regarded she does not mind if a man is a little wild and if she isn't, thinks it rather a milk sob. But with admirable perspicacity, she realises that for the woman a stricter rule is needed. If she falls, Mrs. Grundy, without the smallest qualm, will give the first push into the pit. Society is a green monster, somnolent apparently, so that you think you can take every kind of liberty, but all the time he watches you. He watches slyly, and when you least expect it, puts out an iron hand to crush you. I hope Bella won't be late, said the dean. We haven't too much time after luncheon to catch our train. Society has made its own decalogue, a code just fit for middling people, who are neither very good nor very bad, but the odd thing is it punishes you just as severely if you act above its code as if you act below it. Sometimes it makes a god of you when you are dead. But it takes precious good care to crucify you when you are alive, Algernon. Soon after this, Bella came in, and when the dean went upstairs, told Miss Lay that on her bookseller's advice, she had purchased for Herbert's view the two portly tombs of Dowden's Life of Shelley. I hope soon he'll have enough poetry to make a little volume, said Bella, and then I shall ask him if I may arrange for publication. I wonder if Mr. Kant will help me to find a publisher. You will find a bank balance your best friend there, my dear, 
answered Miss Lay. Basil announced the approaching marriage to his solicitor, for his small fortune was held in trust, and his mother's signature was needed for various documents. In a day or two, the following letter reached him. Cher enfant, I find that you mean to be married, and I desire to give you my maternal blessing. Do come to tea tomorrow, and receive it in due form. You have sulked with me quite long enough, and the masculine odeur is always a trifle ridiculous. In case it has escaped your memory, I venture to remind you that I am your mother. Yours affectionately, Margaret Vizard. P.S. It is one of the ironies of nature that so a man, if his father is canae, may console himself with the thought that this relationship is always a little uncertain. With regard to his mother, he can lay no such flattering unction to his soul. Lady Vizard was thrilled when she prophesied that a couple of years would suffice for her to regain the place in society due to her beauty, wealth, and distinction. None knew better than her position after the trial was precarious, and it required much tact to circumvent the many pitfalls. She was aware that the two best stepping stones for social aspirants are philanthropy and the Church of Rome. But the astute creature did not think her state so desperate as to meet conversion, and a certain assiduity in charitable pursuits offered all that was requisite. Lady Vizard made a dead set for respectability in the person of a tedious old lady, whose rank and opulence gave her unlimited credit with the world, and whose benevolence made her an easy tool. Lady Edward Stranger was a little old woman, with false teeth and a bright chestnut wig, always said awry, and, though immensely dull, managed to assemble in her drawing-rooms everyone in London of real importance. Relation of Lord Vizard, she had quarrelled with him desperately, and it was but natural that his wife should pour her troubles into a willing ear. Now, when she chose, Lady Vizard could assume a manner so flattering that few could resist it. She had an agile tongue and so good a memory for the lies she told that she was never caught tripping. She unfolded a story of her matrimonial unhappiness with such pathetic skill that Lady Edward touched, promised to do everything to help her. She appeared at the old lady's parties, and presently the world concluded it could well afford to know an amusing woman who suffered from no lack of money. When Basil arrived, obedient to her summons, he found his mother seated in that favourite attitude in which she had been painted, and the portrait, by its staring colour, the sensation of his season, hung behind her to show how little in ten years the clever woman had changed. By her side were the inevitable cigarettes, smelling salts, and the French novel, which on its appearance lately had excited the prosecution. Lady Vizard held a store at a forthcoming bazaar, and it was not altogether without satisfaction that she read at that moment the prospectus in which her name figured on the list whereof the obvious respectability was highly imposing. Tall and statuesque, she wore her gowns with a flaunting extravagance rather than with the simplicity, often bordering on slovenliness, of most of her countrywomen. She had no desire to conceal from masculine gaze the sinuous outlines of her splendid figure, and dressed with the bold effrontery of the sensual woman, 
to draw attention to her particular anatomy rather than to conceal it nor was she strange to the intricate art of maquillage the average englishwoman characteristically feeling it a first step in the descent to avernus paints it badly she can never avoid the idea that cosmetics are a little wicked or a little vulgar and a tiny devil clover-footed and betailed lurks always at the bottom of her rouge-pot then perversely the plunge one's sticking to reassure herself she very distinctly exaggerates lady vizard used all the artifices known to the wise but so cleverly that the result was admirable even her hair which to most of her sex is a block of stumbling was dyed in complete harmony with her eyes and complexion so that the gross male intelligence was often deceived her eyebrows were perfect and the pencilled line at her eyelashes gave her flashing eyes a greater intensity the cosmetic on her lips was applied with an artist's hand and her mouth was no less beautiful than cupid's bowl lady Vizard had not seen her son for five years and she noted the change in him with interest but without emotion let me give you some tea she said by the way why didn't you come and see me on your return from the cape you forget that you gave miller orders not to admit me you shouldn't have taken that au grand sérieux i dismiss my maid every time she does my hair badly but she's been with me for years i forgave you in a week their eyes met and realized that the position between them was unchanged lady Vizard shrugged her shoulders i asked you to come to-day because i thought you might have grown more tolerant in five years apparently you are one of those men who never learn even a year before basil would have answered that he hoped never to grow tolerant of this honour but now ashamed he sat in silence his effort was to assume the air of polite indifference which his mother used so easily he foresaw her next question and it tortured him that he must expose part at least of his secret to that scornful woman yet just because it was so distasteful he meant to answer openly and whom are you going to marry no one you have ever heard of he answered smiling do you wish to make a secret of a fortunate creature's name miss bush that doesn't sound very distinguished does it who is her father he's in the city rich very poor lady Vizard looked at her son keenly then with a peculiar expression leaned forward pardon me if i ask but is she what your tedious grandmother called a gentlewoman she's a barmaid in fleet street he answered defiantly without hesitation came the next question in a ringing voice and when do you expect the accouchement a blow could not have taken him more aback the blood rushed to his cheeks and he sprang to his feet her eyes rested on him with cool scorn and confounded by her penetration he found nothing to say i'm right am i virtue has had a fall apparently ah mon cher i've not forgotten the charming things you said to me five years ago have you don't you remember the eloquence with which you spoke of chastity and honour and you called me a name which well-conducted sons don't usually apply to their mothers but i take it your wife will have no fewer claims to it than i if i have lust in my blood it's because i have the misfortune to be your son he cried fiercely 
I can't help admiring you when I remember the unctuous rectitude with which you acted the upright man. And you were playing your little game all the time. But, franchement, your little game rather disgusts me. I don't like these hoe-and-corner tricks with barmies. I dare say I did wrong, but I mean to make amends. Of all fools, the sins preserve me from the fool who repents. If you can't seem like a gentleman, you'd really better be virtuous. A gentleman doesn't marry a barmaid because he's seduced her, unless he has the soul of a counter-jumper, and then you dare to come to me with your impudent sermons. At the recollection, her eyes flashed, and she stood over Basil like some wrathful, outraged goddess. What do you know of life and the fiery passion that burns in my veins? You don't know what devils tear at my breast. How can you judge me? But what do I care? I've had a good time in my day, and I'm not finished yet. And after all, if you weren't such a prey, you'd see that I'm a better sort than most women, or I've never deserted a friend nor hit an enemy that was done. This she said with an angry vehemence, fluently as though she had often uttered the words to herself, and now at last found the opportunity for which she had waited. But quickly she regained that cutting irony of manner, which she well knew was most effective. And when I grow old, I shall go into the Catholic Church and finish my days in the odour of sanctity. Have you anything more to say to me? asked Basil coldly. Nothing, she replied, shrugging her shoulders. You were born to make a fool of yourself. You're one of those persons who are doomed to mediocrity because you haven't the spirit to go to the devil like a man. Go away, marry your barmaid. I tell you that you disgust me. Blind with rage, his hands clenched, Basil turned to the door, but before he reached it, the butler announced Locke to Capit, and the tall fair youth entered. Basil gave him an angry glare, for he could well imagine what were the relations between his mother and the wealthy peer. Locke de Capit looked after him with astonishment. Who is that amiable person? he asked. Lady Vizard gave a little irritated laugh. A foolish creature. It doesn't interest me. One of my predecessors? No, of course not, answered Lady Vizard, amused. Give me a kiss, child. Profoundly despondent, Basil walked back to the temple, and when he came to his door, it was opened by Jenny. He remembered then that she had promised to come that afternoon to hear the final arrangements for their marriage, which was to take place at the registry office. I met my brother Jimmy in the Strand, Basil, she said, and I brought him up to see you. Going in, he found a weedy youth seated on the table with dangling legs. He had sandy hair, a clean-shaven, sharp face, and pale eyes. Much commoner than his sister, he spoke with a pronounced cockney accent. And when he smiled, showing small discoloured teeth, had an expression of rather odious cunning. He was dressed in the height of fashion for city sportsmen with a rakish bowler, check suit, and a bright violet shirt, he flourished a thin bamboo cane. How do, he said, nodding to Basil, pleased to make your acquaintance. I'm afraid I've kept you waiting. Don't apologize, Mr. Bush answered cheerfully. I can't stay long, because I'm a businessman, but I thought I'd better just pop in and say out you do to my future brother-in-law. I'm a chap as likes to be cordial. It's very kind of you, said Basil politely. My, 
He was surprised when I told him I was going to marry you, Basil, cried Jenny with a little laugh of pleasure. Now then, don't mind me, said James. Give him a slobber, old heart. Go on, Jimmy, you are a caution. Oh, I see you're bashful. Well, I'd be toddling. Won't you have some tea before you go? asked Basil. Bless you, I don't want to disturb your canary birds, and I'm not much of an anne at tea. I leave that to females. I like something stronger myself. That's Jimmy all over, cried his sister, amused. I have some whiskey, Mr. Bush, said Basil, raising his eyebrows. Oh, blow the mister and blow the bush. Call me Jimmy. I can't stand ceremony. We're both of us gentlemen. Now, mind you, I'm not a fellow to praise myself, but I will say this. I'm a gentleman. That's not self-praise, is it? Dear me, no. Mere statement of fact. It's a thing you can't help. So what's the good of being proud about it? If I meet a chap in a pub and he wants to stand me a drink, I don't ask him if he's a lord. But you just take it. Well, you'd do the same yourself, wouldn't you? I dare say. May I offer you some whiskey now? Well, if you're so pressing, my motto is never refuse a gargle. They say it's good for the teeth. Basil poured out. How hard, old man, cried James. You needn't be too generous with the sots. Well, ease luck. He emptied his glass at a gob and smacked his lips. There are no flies about it, I lay. Now I'll be toddling. Basil did not press him to stay, but by way of speeding the parting guest offered a cigar. James took and examined it. Villa y Villa, he exclaimed. That's all right. How much do they run you in a hundred? I really don't know what they caused. They were given to me. Basil struck a match. Won't you take the labour off? Not if I know it, said James with much decision. I don't smoke a villa y Villa every day, and when I do, I smoke it with the label on. Well, so long. See you later, old tart. When he was gone, Jenny turned to her lover. Kiss me. There, now I can sit down quietly and talk. How'd you like my brother? I scarcely know him yet, answered Basil cautiously. He's not a bad sort when you do, and he can make you laugh. He's just like my mother. Is he? Quite Basil, with some vivacity. And is your father like that too? Well, you know, Pa's not had the education that Jimmy's had. Jimmy was at a boarding school at Margate. You were at a boarding school, weren't you? Yes, I was at Harrow. Ah, you don't get the fine air at Harrow that you do at Margate. No, said Basil. Come and sit by me, Ducky. I'm so glad we are alone. I should like to be alone with you all my life. You do love me, don't you? Yes. Much? Yes, he repeated, smiling. She gave him a long, searching glance, and her eyes suddenly darkened. She looked away. Basil, I want to say something to you, and it's dreadfully hard. What is it, darling? He put his arm round her waist and drew her towards him. No, don't do that, she said, getting up and moving away. Please stay where you are. I can't say it if I look at you. He paused, wondering what was in her mind. She spoke brokenly, as though by an effort almost beyond her strength. Are you sure you love me, Basil? Quite sure, he answered, trying to smile. Because I don't want to be married out of pity or anything like that. If you're only doing it because you think you ought, I'd rather go on as I am. But why do you say this now, Jenny? I've been thinking it over. The other day when you offered to marry me, I was so happy, I couldn't think it out. But I love you so much that I've seen things quite differently since then. I don't want to hurt you. I know I'm not the sort of woman you ought to marry, and I can't help you to get on. Her voice trembled. 
but she forced herself to continue and basil motionless listened to her gravely he could not see her face i want to know if you really care for me basil if you don't you've only got to say so and we'll break it off after all i'm not the first girl that's got into trouble i could easily manage you know for one moment he hesitated and his heart beat painfully miss lay's cold of eyes his mother's scorn recurred to him the girl herself offered an opportunity and would it not after all be best to seize it his freedom stood before him and he exulted a few easy words might destroy that horrible nightmare and he could start life afresh wiser and better but jenny turned around and in her sad beautiful eyes he saw a mortal anxiety and sickening anguish of her expectation she could scarcely breathe he had not the strength to speak jenny don't torture yourself he said brokenly and you torture me too you know i love you and i want to marry you straight yes she sighed deeply and heavy tears fell down her cheeks for a while she remained silent you've saved my life basil she said at last i made up my mind that if you didn't want to marry me i'd do away with myself what nonsense you talk i mean it i couldn't have faced it i'd fixed it all up in my head i should have waited till it was dark and then i'd have gone over the bridge i will do my best to be a good husband to you jenny he said but when jenny left him basil utterly bowed down surrendered himself to an uncontrollable depression it came to his mind that miss ley had likened existence to a game of chess and now bitterly he recalled each move that he should have played differently again and again the result hung as on a balance so that if he had acted otherwise everything would have gone right but each time the choice appeared to matter so little one way or the other and it was not till afterwards that he saw the fateful consequence every move was irretrievable but at the moment seemed strangely unimportant it was not a fair game for the issue was hidden constantly by a trivial mask and then it appeared to him as though after all he had never had the choice in the matter he felt himself powerless in the hand of a greater might and fate for once grown ghastly visible directed each step as though he were a puppet now life before him loomed black and cheerless and even his child the thought of which had been his greatest strength offered no solace oh what shall i do he moaned what shall i do he remembered with a shudder jenny's threat of suicide and he knew that she would have carried it out unhesitating a sudden impulse seized him in just such a manner to finish with all that doubt and misery but then setting his teeth he sprang up i won't be such a funk he cried savagely after all i've made my bed and must lie on it End of chapter eight